We're going to be uh, beginning a new study this evening. It's going to be a journey through the book of Titus. And this evening, uh, if I'm not careful, it could seem a little bit academic because I'm going to give you some background information on Titus. Uh, Also, I'm going to be starting out tonight with the first four verses of the book of Titus, uh, and it's a greeting. Um, and most people might not necessarily think of uh, starting a sermon uh, out, of, out of verses like those. Uh, but I'm going to uh, pray before we get started. I've, uh, I've been kind of sick the past couple days, and my head is still a little bit cloudy, and uh, I always need God's grace, but perhaps even more tonight. So let's pray as we get into this. Father, I thank you so much that, uh, that you love us, and I thank you that because you love us, uh, you've given us your Son, And I thank you that uh, your Son is the Word made flesh. I thank you, Lord, because you love us. You've also given us the written Word. You've given us the Bible. And I thank you, Father, that your Spirit spoke to and through the original authors. I thank you, Father, that even today your Spirit speaks through uh, those words to your people. And Father, I pray that tonight your Spirit would speak. Father, I pray for extra grace. I pray that you'd help me to be, uh, to be clear-headed. I pray that you'd give me not only clarity of thought, but of speech. Father, I pray that you'd help me to get out of the way and, uh, and to remain sensitive to your Spirit who is speaking through your Word and also brings to mind spontaneously things that you would have for your people and that I would just be sensitive to whatever your Spirit would have to say tonight. Father, I thank you that you care for us and that you are here among us and that you desire good for us. You desire fellowship with us. You desire for us to be transformed into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that tonight you would work in us that which is pleasing to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name and for whose sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul wrote many letters as part of his ministry, um, even though the, uh, the Roman Empire had a, a system of roads uh, that promoted travel and commerce uh, and made it easier for people like Paul to get around than, uh, than people at perhaps any other point in history, um, travel was still slow. And so since Paul wasn't able to go everywhere and perhaps not get everywhere quickly, he wrote many letters to communicate as part of his ministry. Uh, Of the 13 epistles or letters that are part of our Bible from the Apostle Paul, all but four of them are to churches, not individuals. When we think of letters, we normally think of uh, writing a letter to, to an individual person. Um, or maybe to a family. But the majority of the letters that we have uh, recorded in Scripture from the Apostle Paul are letters to hold churches. Four of the letters that we have that are not written to churches, um, three of them are written to two different guys who were his assistants. One was named Timothy, and the other was named Titus. And these three letters, that are the three letters that are written to these two guys, the, the book of Titus and the books of First and Second Timothy, they're often referred to as pastoral epistles or letters. And there's two reasons why. First of the reasons is that both Timothy and Titus were ministers. And the second reason is that the content of this, these letters deals largely with life in the local church how to order the local church, how, they should be, how churches should be governed, what their doctrine should be, and what the corporate witness of the church should be, what the lives of the church members should be like. Now, <clears throat> it's important for us to, to remember this, and some people get it wrong here. Technically, Timothy and Titus were not pastors. They held a very special Office. Uh, it's one that's not listed necessarily by name in Scripture, uh, depending on how you read it, but it's one that we gather. Both of these men 
had the office of an apostolic assistant. That basically means they were an assistant to an apostle. Uh, Some commentators and scholars think that uh, the office of the evangelist in Ephesians chapter 4 is not actually some dude in his 50s who travels to small Southern Baptist churches um, where they kick off the week with a potluck dinner and do an invitation every night, but rather is someone like Titus or Timothy, someone who is an assistant to an apostle. Uh, what's important for us to, why it's important for us to remember that is both these guys were given a charge to oversee not just one church, but several churches. And not as a pastor, but as an assistant to the Apostle Paul who is to go and follow up on what the Apostle Paul had set into motion and was to go and to deliver instructions from the Apostle Paul and was to go and to make sure the instructions that the Apostle Paul gave were being carried out. And so Paul says... I can't go to the island of Crete and stay long term. I have to go somewhere else. But Titus, I'm going to leave you on the island of Crete and you are going to be my representative there and I am telling you what should be done and you're going to make sure that it gets done. And you're doing it basically with my authority. You're doing it as my messenger. And so... Everything that we read uh, about, about uh, in the book of Titus, because it was not just Paul's instruction for one church, but many churches, holds true for all churches and holds true for our church today. The book of Titus could be considered a pastor's manual for leading a local church, as, as with much of 1 Timothy. They could be considered a pastor's manual for leading a local church. A couple things that we need to know before we actually jump into the text. And one of those things is uh, about who this guy Titus is. We find three other references to Titus in the Bible. And the first of those is in the book of uh, Galatians. In chapter 2, we're told that Titus is Greek. Um, we're told that Titus was with the Apostle Paul when he went up to Jerusalem. I believe it's Acts 14. Uh, and what happens in that incidence is, is a pretty big deal. It's, it's the first council in the history of the Christian church. And what happened was James, who was one of the elders at the church at Jerusalem and who was also half-brother of Jesus, along with the rest of the elders at the church at Jerusalem, along with many of the apostles, all gathered at the church in Jerusalem to decide what are the requirements for non-Jews with regards to their salvation. Remember, Jesus was born as a Jew among the Jewish people. Jesus said to some when he walked the earth, I have come but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus is saying, my primary ministry focus during my days upon the earth are ethnic Jews. But Jesus also said, I have other sheep, and they must also be with this flock so that there might be one flock even as there are one shepherd. And so Jesus was alluding to the fact that God's people would no longer be isolated to only ethnic Jews. We talked about this some last week. Um, and so the, the audio, the sermon audio is online at bchannibal.com if you'd like to hear more about that. But Jesus alluded to the fact that no longer would God's people just be ethnic Jews. Uh, and we come to find out that what he meant is that Gentiles, ethnic non-Jews, would also become part of God's people, would also be part of the church, those who Jesus has saved for himself. And so at Jerusalem, in Acts 14, they're deciding, every one of us who happens to be a Christian and also is a Jew, were circumcised, if we were male, at birth. Most of us have grown up observing Jewish uh, traditions. Most of us, pr- pretty much all of us, 
have grown up uh, being taught to observe the Jewish law. And so we have been taught growing up to be faithful Jews. And now we're also Christians. We see that our Judaism does not save us. It's Jesus that saves us. But we still consider all of this stuff, our Jewish heritage, pretty important. So what about Gentiles? What about non-Jews? Should they be circumcised? Should they obey the law? Should they obey all the the festivals? Uh, Should they uh, uh, observe all our cultural heritage and believe in Jesus just like we do? And so Paul had this, this man, Titus, who is Greek. And Paul basically brings him along to say, the gospel that I preach, that I receive from Jesus, is faith alone in Christ alone. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so here's Timothy, or Titus, a non-Jew, and he's not circumcised, and he doesn't observe the law. And according to my gospel handed down to me by Jesus, he's saved. He's in right standing with, with God. And so at the Jerusalem Council, they decided, yes, this is true, this is good. Non-Jews do not have to observe the law uh, and trust in Christ to be saved. Trusting in Christ alone is sufficient, and we don't need to lump all of our Jewish heritage on, uh, on to them. They don't need to live up to this standard. And so Titus was with Paul at this pivotal um, meeting in the history of the Christian church. Also, in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul tells how he arrived at a place called Treos, and he sensed that there was an open door for ministry. Basically, Paul sensed that if he would stay and would preach the gospel, that God would bless his work. And yet he says, I didn't find Titus there, and I was troubled, so I left. Get this. Paul says, if I would have stayed, it would have been really good. But Titus wasn't there, so I left. Like, dude, people kill for an open door to fruitful ministry. There are guys who are beating their heads against the wall because ministry is definitely not fruitful. And you had fruitful ministry and you left because this guy wasn't there. Then also we're told in uh, chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians that Paul and his uh, companions arrived in Macedonia at one point in their journeys. And when they got to Macedonia, they found out that Titus was there. And even though they were very fatigued and they were very discouraged because many of the obstacles that they'd encountered, as soon as they saw that Titus was there, their hearts were encouraged greatly. So between these three uh, references to Titus, we, we begin to pick up that He played a significant role in the Apostle Paul's ministry. The Apostle Paul counted this man valuable to the cause of Christ and valuable to his work as an apostle. And so the Apostle Paul has left Titus in Crete. It's an island in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Greece. And uh, though there were likely many towns we can be sure that there were at least four towns on this island. And so, again, what we read in the book of Titus applies not just to one church in one city, but it applies to several churches scattered throughout several towns on this one island. And so we're going to jump in to the book of Titus, starting with verse 1. And reading through to verse 4. If you have your Bible and haven't turned there already, I encourage you to do so. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles that are provided for you. And the book of Titus can be found in those Bibles on page number 998. 998. So if you don't have your own Bible, you can grab a Bible that looks like this. And page 998 is where we will be launching out. Say amen when you're there. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began 
and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, these first four verses, the opening part of the letter, are just the greeting. They're, they're just the greeting. They're just the hello, Titus. But that doesn't make them insignificant. And one reason why we know they're not insignificant is because out of Paul's 13 letters that we have in the New Testament, only two other letters have an introduction this long or longer. Most of Paul's letters begin with a very brief introduction. Hi, this is Paul. Here's who the letter's to. But this, this one has four verses. Uh, one uh, really long, run-on sentence. And, uh, and so there's, there's some things of significance here. Uh, these verses expound upon who Paul is, but they also uh, tell us what his mission or what his ministry is all about. Paul begins by saying he is a servant of Christ. That word servant, uh, doulos, is actually slave. He's a slave of Christ. He's one who does not consider his own interest, who does not consider his own desires, but is a devoted servant to the point that he is a slave and that his interest and his desire and his focus is only that of his master. Paul is a servant of God. Paul is saying, my life is nothing. What God's will is, is my number one aim. Well, what kind of a servant is he? Paul also is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's a servant of God, but he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, apostle uh, means basically messenger. At its basic definition, the word apostle means messenger. Uh, throughout the New Testament, though, the word apostle is used perhaps most commonly to refer to uh, a special group of messengers or ministers, the apostles of Jesus Christ. And that's a small group of perhaps 16. It includes the 11 who Jesus chose to follow Him, basically the 12 minus Judas, when Jesus walked the earth, then Judas, uh, who betrayed Jesus, committed suicide. He was, the Bible refers to him as the son of perdition. So we believe that he was not probably a believer. And so in Acts chapter 1, we see that the apostles decided, the other 11 decided, uh, based upon what they read in the Old Testament, the scriptures that they had, that they should replace Judas, and so by lot, basically by roll of dice, they chose a man named Matthias to replace Judas, so the twelve. Then we also see that Paul is an apostle, and then there's three other guys who the word uh, apostle is used uh, in connection with, and it, it's speculation whether or not it just means messenger in a general sense, or it actually means these guys were the special messengers of Jesus. And here's two qualifications that makes someone one of this special class of 13, possibly 16, if you include James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, Barnabas, and Silas. And here's the two qualifications. We find them in Acts chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 15. The first is they've seen the risen Christ. They have seen Jesus Christ post-resurrection. That's one thing that they must have seen. In Acts chapter 1, the apostles say we must pick one from among us who has been with us since the days of John the Baptist and with Jesus going in and coming out uh, around us. So we have to pick someone who's been with us during the days of Jesus, who's seen Jesus particularly who's seen Jesus post-resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about all the people Jesus appeared to, and he says, last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally or one untimely born. Paul says abnormally or untimely because Jesus had already appeared to more than 500 believers and ascended into heaven and then made a special return appearance uh, to the Apostle Paul. So the first thing is that they've seen the risen Christ. The second thing is that they've been commissioned by Jesus. 
Jesus chose them. The eleven, we know undoubtedly, Jesus chose. In Acts chapter 1, when they decided to replace Judas, they said, Lord, here are two men, Matthias and Justice. You show us which one you have picked. And we're told that they cast lots. And Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap. So the dice are rolled. But it's every decision is from the Lord. The way they land is the way that God chose for them to land. So the eleven understood that it was not just a game of chance who the twelfth apostle would be, but it was God's sovereign providence dictating which of those two men he would choose to be commissioned. So we see that they had seen the risen Christ and they had been commissioned by Jesus. These men were messengers of Christ and they were messengers to the world that Christ had risen. They were witnesses of the resurrection. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm a servant of God and I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am one of the small band of men who are witnesses of the resurrection that Jesus has commissioned to go out and to establish His church. There is a special authority that is invested in these group of men. So that we'll see that Paul is able to tell Titus, let no one disregard you. How can he say, let no one disregard you? Because I'm an apostle. And Jesus appeared to me and Jesus commissioned me to establish His church and you are my assistant and I am leaving you here to carry out my orders. And so if someone were to say, well, who are you, Titus, that we should listen to you? You can say, I am an assistant to the Apostle Paul who is commissioned by the risen Christ. So what I tell you packs a punch. There's some authority here. So Paul, in saying that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, is even here reminding Titus of the authority with which he writes him. It is not a pen pal uh, letter just to cheer up his buddy on the island of Crete. It is written with the authority of Jesus Christ as a commissioned servant of the risen Lord. He says, I'm a slave of God. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And why, why is Paul an apostle? You know, uh, <clears throat> Charisma Magazine, if you guys have never read Charisma Magazine, you should pick it up sometime. There's some actual helpful stuff in there, but there's some, there's some really funny stuff too. And uh, on about every third page, there is a, an advertisement for a conference. And it'll say, come to the Days of Victory conference and get your special touch of anointing by the Apostle F.W. Wayward and, and First Lady Jenkins and the Apostle Stone and the Apostle this. And, and all of these guys have these titles. And it's all recognition for self. Paul makes it pretty clear that his title of Apostle isn't for recognition of self. It isn't, hey everybody, look at me, I'm an apostle, come to my conference. Why is, why is Paul an apostle? Paul says that the reason for his calling, the reason for his apostleship, the reason that he has been commissioned by Jesus is for the sake of the elect. The elect, those whom God has chosen to save for himself. Paul says I am an apostle, not for myself, not for my wealth, not for my fame, not for my own benefit, but for the sake of the elect, for those whom God has chosen for himself. And there's three ways that Paul says that his apostleship is to benefit, or three benefits for the elect that he seeks. The first is for their faith, for their faith. Now, some people struggle with this idea of election, that God would choose some for himself, and perhaps not all. And one of the, uh, one of the rebuttals that people give is, well, if that's true, that God has chosen some people to save and they're going to be saved, then doesn't that just make prayer pointless? Doesn't that just make evangelism pointless? Doesn't that just make uh, ministry and sharing pointless? Why does it matter? If God's chosen to save them and He's going to save them, why, why does it matter? Well, Paul says it matters. 
And in Acts 14, Paul is preaching. And he's preaching to Jews. And he says, when they will not receive the gospel that he's preaching, fine. I started with you. The Old Testament shows that God began His work among you and God has given you the first dibs at the Gospel. And I have started my work among you and you have rejected the Gospel of Christ and you have rejected the right to be the people of God. So from here, I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm going to the non-Jews. I'm going to the people that you have uh, opposed out of racism and thought that you were better than all along. That's who I'm going to preach the gospel to. And in verse 48, we're told that when the, when the uh, Gentiles heard this, they were exceedingly glad and they rejoiced. They rejoiced that God was no longer working solely among the Jews, but that God was extending His offer of salvation to all. And we're told in verse 48, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. That means God had those among the non-Jews there where Paul was preaching who He had predestined. They were the elect. God had appointed them to eternal life and when they heard the Gospel, they believed. God appoints the elect and grants them the faith to believe. But they must hear the Gospel and exercise their faith. God ordains both the means and the end. And the end does not negate the means. What God says will be in the end does not make the process God chooses to get things there irrelevant. God not only ordains the end, but He also ordains the means. And so He says, this is the desired goal. These people among that city will believe in Christ. I'm ordaining that. And I'm ordaining that these people will preach the Gospel so that these people will hear it and believe. He ordains both the means and the end. And Paul saw the end was that those whom God had chosen for Himself would be saved. And the means that they would be saved by would be their faith in Christ. And so Paul says, my calling is for the sake of the elect, first of all, for their faith, that they might actually be the elect, that they might actually believe in Christ and be saved. Second, for their knowledge. And that's a knowledge that accords with godliness. Paul wants them to know truth. And there's a connection between what we know and how we live. What we know and how we live. And Paul says, this knowledge, this truth, it accords with godliness. It's compatible with a godly lifestyle. And so I want them to know the truth that will affect their actions. And we'll see more throughout the book of Titus how our beliefs and our actions go hand in hand. How they're to be wed. How they go together. And then Paul says also for the, their hope of salvation. For their faith, for their knowledge of the truth, and for their hope of salvation. And, and what, what gives folks the hope of salvation? Well, Paul's saying they come to faith <clears throat> excuse me, they come to know truth. It produces the fruit of godliness in their life. And they see the evidence of godliness in their life. And it increases in them the hope that God is working in me. And He will carry it to the end. Works don't produce eternal life. But as we see fruit in our lives, it assures us that God 
has given us eternal life and that God is working out salvation in our lives. And so Paul wanted these people to come to faith. He wanted them to know truth. He wanted it to be lived out and he wanted it to bring encouragement that God had saved them and that God was saving them. And God said that God, uh, and Paul said that God had promised to save the elect. This is why Paul was called to be an apostle for their faith, for the sake of the faith of the elect, for their knowledge and the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, and that God had promised it. God had promised that He would accomplish it. He would save them. We see an example of this promise in John 6. In John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, excuse me, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus said that God has given Him some that they will come to Him that those who come to Him He will not turn away that He will save to the end and He will raise them up on the last day. Who are those whom the Father has given to the Son? Those whom He has chosen before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1.4 says... He, God, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before God. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. God has promised that He will save the people that He chose to save. And so Paul is on a mission to share the gospel so that those people will trust in Christ. And Paul says that this is God's promise to save a people for Himself. This is God's promise. He will do it. And then Paul says this, and God never lies. God never lies. If God has said that He will do it, then He will do it. If God has said that He will save a people for Himself, then that means when Jesus told His disciples after His resurrection, go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all creatures under heaven. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That it wasn't futile. That it wasn't pointless. That it wasn't just going to be a matter of them going and sharing and sharing and sharing and taking a beating and sharing some more and taking a couple more beatings and then Jesus coming back and no fruit. No. There is an encouragement that God will save those whom He has chosen. So there will be fruitful ministry so that we might share and share and share and share and never see anyone come to faith in Christ, but eventually someone will come to faith in Christ, not because we're just that good, but because God has promised that Jesus' death was not in vain, that His blood was effective for saving a people for Himself, that God would have a people for Himself And God doesn't lie. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 6.18, excuse me, we're told that God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. Is there anything that's impossible for God to do? Could God make a rock so big that He couldn't move it? Is there anything impossible for God to do? Yes. God cannot lie. That doesn't make him any less God. That makes him an even better God. He's not a liar. He's not a liar. Romans, it says, let every man be found a liar, but you will still be found true. 
God can never lie. And so when God says, Jesus' death was good for something, I will have a people. I will save a people for myself. Paul took encouragement. Paul, who talks in 2 Corinthians about how three times he was beat with rods. You know, Jesus received 40 lashes minus one, one time. Paul received 40 lashes minus one, three times. Twice, uh, perhaps three times, Paul was shipwrecked. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians, I, I can't remember what chapter it is, talking about all the hardship that he has endured because of the gospel, the beatings that he has taken for preaching the gospel. What keeps a man going? in a situation like that? What keeps Jesus going when He's absorbing the wrath of God? What keeps someone going? The fact that God never lies. That God said, it's not in vain. I will save a people for Myself. And so you know that there will be fruit in the end. You know that there will be a victory in the end. Paul says, God promised this. God, who never lies, He promised this, the salvation of the elect. Promised before the ages began. He's promised to save those who trust in Christ. And the preaching of the Gospel is the good news of God's promise made known. Paul says it's manifested. God's promise is manifested in His Word through preaching. And so the preaching of the Gospel is the good news of God's promise made known. The good news that God, who has always existed, who created all things for His own glory, who created man to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever, was sinned against by man. Man committed high treason against God. He rebelled against God. Because of his sin, man died spiritually. Death and sin entered into the world physically. Man separated from God because of his sin. He only deserves God's wrath. There's nothing that he can do to save himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh, born of a virgin, lived the perfect life that we should live but can't, died the death that we deserve to die, absorbing the wrath of God, but don't have to, rose from the dead three days later, now is now seated at the right hand of God the Father where He promises to save all those who will call on Him, canceling their sin and crediting His righteousness to them. Paul says that the preaching of the Gospel, the preaching of this message, is where God's promise is manifested. It's made visible. It's made known. God's promise to save those who trust in Christ from before the foundation of the world is made known through preaching. John 3.16, the promise is that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Whoever believes for everyone, not just for Jew, but for Gentile. Not just for Gentile who lived a pretty good life, but for the person who's been a drug dealer, been a fornicator, been an adulterer, been uh, a thief, been a liar, been uh, a hypocrite, been everything that you can name. It's good for them. It counts for them if they will believe it and turn from their sin. God made a promise to save a people for Himself. That promise is made known through the Gospel, the preaching of the Gospel. And it's good for anybody who will turn from their sin and trust in Him. That promise is made good for them. Now here's a question that sometimes people ask. Slight um, side trail. When we talk about predestination and we talk about election, on occasion there will be at least one person in a crowd who will wonder to themselves, Well, how do I know that I'm elect? If God elected, chose, predestined the people for Himself whom He would save, and He promises that He will save them, and He promises 
that they will trust in Christ and they will be saved, how can I know that I'm elect? Maybe I'm just faking it. Maybe I'm just kidding myself. How can I know that God has chosen me, predestined me? And on occasion, there'll be at least one person in a crowd who will ask himself that question. Charles Spurgeon has a, a story. He was an 18th century, or 19th century British pastor. And uh, Spurgeon says, I once knew a good woman who was the subject of many doubts. And when I got to the bottom of her doubt, it was this. She knew she loved Christ, but she was afraid he did not love her. She's thinking to herself, maybe I'm not really elect. Maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe I'm trying in vain. Oh, I said, this is a doubt that will never trouble me, never, by any possibility, because I am sure of this, that the heart is so corrupt naturally that love to God never did get there without God's putting it there. You may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is a fruit and not a root. It is the fruit of God's love for you and did not get there by the force of any goodness in you. You may conclude with absolute certainty that God loves you if you love God. And so one question to ask, how do I know that I'm elect? Well, the fact that you care means something. Do you love God? Do you have any desire for God? Guess what? You're terrible, and I am too, and all of us are on, on our own. And so the fact that you have something in you that is praiseworthy, a desire to love and know God, a true desire to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, must mean that God put something good in you, must mean that God is working in you, must mean that you should have some assurance of God's love for you. First John tells us, We love him because he first loved us. As Spurgeon says, it's the fruit, not the root. Our love for God is the fruit of his love for us, not the root of it. You know, I think some people who struggle with this struggle because when they're trying to find a security for their salvation in Christ, they're remembering a day long, long ago, the point of their conversion. Well, I, 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 I kind of remember that day. I was five, and there was a guy talking, and I don't remember what he said, but I just remember I was really sad. And so I knew that I didn't want to go to hell, and, um, and so I walked down that aisle, and, and I, I prayed that prayer, and I got baptized. And, and I really don't remember anything about what I felt or meant, um, but I remember that day, and, and that's the day I got saved, and... Uh, and that's, what, that's when it happened. But I'm just, but, but is it real? And am I really saved? And, and there's all these questions. And the question that we should ask ourselves is, what am I trusting in? What am I really trusting in? Am I really trusting in a prayer? Am I really trusting in walking an aisle? Am I trusting in getting baptized? Or am I trusting that Jesus Christ died for sinners and said, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if right now your trust is in Jesus Christ, right now your trust is, I am made right with God. I know right now that God's love is being showered on me and not His wrath. I know right now that I am saved from my sin because Jesus died for sins and rose again and said, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If that's what I'm trusting in right now, that's all I need to know. Praise God for that day when I was five. Praise God for that event at church camp when you were ten. Praise God for that time after worship where you stayed and talked with someone and they prayed with you. Praise God for those times. But is your trust in that time or is your trust in Jesus Christ died to save me? Right now, that's what I trust in. That is my anchor. That is my strong foundation. If that's your trust right now, you needn't worry if you're elect. You are. 
That's your trust. God promised to save a people for himself. He promised that those people would trust in Christ. And if you care, and if your trust is in Christ, then you should have assurance and you should have confidence. This is the good news. Those who trust in Christ, those who turn from their sins and trust in Him, they will be saved. This is the promise of God that is manifested or revealed, as Paul says, in the Word that he preaches. And Paul was charged to preach this good news by Jesus directly. And the good news, we're told, was made known at just the right time. And in our community groups, we've been discussing the book of Titus. Um, And so... If, uh, if you are in a community group, then you are four weeks ahead of me. You're already probably midway through chapter two. Um, and so if you're not in a community group, maybe you haven't been thinking about uh, Titus before tonight. And so maybe, uh, maybe there's some stuff that, that going right, right over your head. You're just not really thinking about it. But, uh, but there might be folks who are part of a community group that they're like, I remember discussing that. And I want to see what he's going to say about it. I remember when we talked about that, and I know my community group leader wrote our input up on the city, and uh, I wonder if he's going to bring out any of the, the, the high points that our community group talked about. And one of the high points that my community group talked about was that, that wording there, at the proper time. It says that it was made manifest, the promise of God, at the proper time, it was manifested in the word through preaching. The proper time. Why was then the proper time? Why was A.D. 62 the proper time and not a thousand years prior? There's lots of reasons uh, that we could come up with. We could speculate. We could put some different things together. We know that at least 6,000 years ago, the good news of the offspring of the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent, defeating the devil and breaking the power of sin, was proclaimed there at the fall. At least 6,000 years ago, we know that message was proclaimed. But it was not until the proper time, that time, that Jesus Christ came in the flesh born of a woman, lived and died and rose again. And so, so what makes it the proper time? We can speculate, like I said, but the lesson here is that God is not in a hurry. He's not slow. He's never early. He's never late. God's plan is always right on schedule. He's always in control. And so Paul is just putting one more log on the fire, burning of God's providence providence and sovereignty that God who chose a people for himself before the foundation of the earth that God who promised to save those this people who put their faith in Christ sent his son at the proper time right on line with his plan his schedule his will and preaching of that message is right in line with it as well and so Paul Then goes on to say, who the letter's to, as we've talked about already, it's to Titus, who Paul was a considerable mentor to. And then he wraps up with this, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This this closing part of the greeting is more than a salutation. Grace and peace to you through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the essence of salvation. Grace, God's unearned, unmerited favor, His goodwill, loving kindness, that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness, grace of speech, grace to you, God's blessing upon you, God's love upon you, God's goodwill toward you through God our Father, and peace through Jesus, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. No longer God's wrath or judgment to expect or fear, but right standing with God, right relationship with God, loving, open relationship with God. In Hebrews 4, we're told that we can approach the throne of grace, the throne of God, 
with confidence. We don't have to fear wrath or judgment. We have peace with God. And so grace and peace through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that right relationship, that loving relationship, that acceptance, favor, and blessing from God because of Christ, peace, a right relationship with God because of Christ, that's the essence of our salvation. And so it's not just a salutation, but it is an ongoing experience. Paul is talking to Titus, who is already a Christian, and he does not say, Titus, I hope that when you pray that you got grace and peace. But he said, grace and peace to you. An ongoing experience of right standing with God, of God's good favor, of God's good will towards you, of God's loveliness and His pleasure and joy that's experienced in Him. Every blessing that there is in God, experience that from God. Enjoy God and peace If you take a beat down, Titus, like I've taken a beat down, have peace. You have peace with God through Christ. Why should you not have peace in the midst of a chaotic life? You have peace with God through Christ. Why should you not enjoy peace in your relationship with Him? Your soul should be stilled. The Good Shepherd leads us beside still waters for His namesake. We have peace calmness, rest. Rest even in our relationship that we're not working hard to be saved, but peace, rest. Jesus has done all the work. Lean on His grace. This is, Paul is is closing out his greeting, so to speak, by reminding Titus the essence of salvation is an ongoing experience. Grace and peace in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ be to you. Continue in it. And so God's great promise to save a people for Himself that's revealed through the preaching of His Word. He promises to save those who trust in Christ and those He saves are to continually experience His saving work in their life and the joy and the grace and the peace that He gives. And this is just the greeting. So the rest of the letter is going to be good. So we're going to take just a couple minutes now and just to focus on the goodness of God and the promise of His salvation and the free offer of life through Christ for everyone who would believe. And during this time, I just encourage you to talk to the Lord and just to try to position your heart to enjoy Him and to thank Him for His love and for this salvation before we respond to His Word by observing the Lord's Supper together. So just take a couple moments as Jason plays.